This is Alan Winson with Barcore Radio. This is a Barcore Radio Extra. I'm here at the First Trinity Lutheran Church Hostel, 501 4th Street Northwest uh, in Washington, D.C., with the Witness Against Torture People. This is 2020. It's in January. I was here last year with them. They come out to Washington, D.C., this group, Witness Against Torture, or what? Every year they've been to Guantanamo. Why? Because they protest the imprisonment of the Muslims who um, were uh, put there back in 2001, 2002, and who have been there for uh, so many years, going on 20 years, and have not been given a fair trial. I'll be talking with the members of Watt who are here, gathered here. We'll be asking who they are, why they're here, and what is the reason for their activism, what inspires them. And this is Barcore Radio Extra, coming from Washington, D.C. Yeah, we got to uh, sidle, hang out a little bit at the Dubliners last year, I remember. That's right. Did we talked yeah. about philosophy-ish. I re- okay, we, now I remember. Did we have a conversation about philosophy, something about your background? Was that you I re- I'm remembering questions. now. Yeah. Yeah, we did. It was like the, the last night uh, most of us were here, right. and we went out to the Dubliners, which is right very close to the church here. And um, it was after everything kind was done. celebration. And we were celebrating and having beers. What is it that we were talking about? I remember being very deep. You did admit some kind of long form. Was it a dissertation question? But I, I know that you may have asked me then right back, well, who are your favorite philosophers? And I could have stumbled into some corner of existentialism, I'm sure. Or no, no, you maybe have, you maybe prompted me guessing. Okay. And then I felt a little bit caught. Were, had to were we talking about semiotics or something? I could have admitted just stumbling into yeah, right. Umberto Echo's thought. My name's Christopher Spicer. I'm coming down from the Mystic Rivershed, watershed of um, outside of Boston, Somerville. I live with my wife and my two daughters. That's great. And what do you do there in Mystic? I've been a stay-at-home dad now going on two plus years. As they've started their lives, I've been at home. And on Fridays, this is my one day that I do I, that my actions on the word. I do a lot of writing. I do a lot of um, fiction writing, preparation. Um, You're and, a stay-at-home dad. That's yeah. wonderful. <laughs> do, do you enjoy it? Is I, that don't, I don't hear that all the time, but I, no, I no, do I think believe it is it, wonderful. I think it's great. I, I, I've never um, had a real full-time job. I've been an adjunct my whole life oh, yeah. and one reason is so I could see my kids grow up and I think I spent more time with my children at, at their young age than my wife did because she had a full-time job oh. so I wasn't a stay-at-home dad but I was there an awful lot because yeah. I felt like that yeah. was really important is this something yeah. that you're enjoying I I don't think it's for all men playing with it with the sense of my childhood um, coming back to me every day um, does feel like a fit. I do, I do lose my temper. Um, oh well. Yeah. I have a talent for how I lose it, which is what I think makes it work. <laughs> All right. Well, you got to say of, something about that. Oh, we have to have, we have to have uh, an ability, as activists, to have mm-hmm. a slow burn to keep at it. Um, somebody once told me, keep the fire, but stoke the coals, uh-huh. and in the long haul. Um, with with kids every day, it's it's a matter of knowing 
where my limits being tested and how to how to reach out and build into my day times where we're and take in a, a nap if possible whenever they're mm-hmm. sleeping right mm-hmm. yeah and and so oh i love the naps <laughs> i love the naps yeah yeah i i um i wish i could do it over again because now I'm, I'm much better at it with my grandson than i was with my own children so just that knowing that you know knowing what this process is as uh, kids because they get stubborn they don't want to move He's like two and a half now. Oh, so oh we're yeah. out on the street in New York yeah, and I'm trying yeah. to get him to the library. And, and the mittens. And he, oh. and he won't go in the yeah. mittens and <laughs> the coat. And I've kind of learned, I've learned a lot. So it's good. Sounds like you, you're way ahead of me. You'll be really ready for the grandkids. Oh, well, God willing. We have uh, such history ahead or future ahead. And my, my grandparent, my, uh, my parents are, you know, now they're almost having their second winds of, 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 speaking of activists and they're mm-hmm. you know and where do we come from as activists but they they are the ones now telling me on the phone what they are up to the trips that they're back to back doing and what you know their causes is and so um well let's it, not talk about their causes because maybe we can <laughs> we can because kind of what why are you here at witness against torture what what brought you here what inspires you to come back at least the second year. Was it last year the first year? You know, in the past 10 years that I've been a part of the FAST, actually, it's a, it's a broad community. Not, not, um, not being here doesn't mean that we're not part of this community. And, there, and we, we find times to be in touch with people through, through email and through conference call. Um, but seven years I've been here, actually, part of the FAST. This, this, uh, this is and just so everyone knows, um, they're, they're a FAST is like almost a week-long FAST. In, um, well, you, you explain it. Why do you fast? You know, men in Guantanamo said enough is enough and began fasting as a, as a way that they reached the attention of the world. Um, as far as I understand, from within the first 100 days, Karen Greenberg writes um, and reports about the, the early strikes, the hunger strikes. The model of the men is so important to the witness against torture that what we're doing is echoing and if we can microphone their stories to humanize. The, the, the tactic of fasting really touches that Gandhian bone in our nonviolence too. So I, I know we are appropriating a nonviolent political fast that's different than a privatized fast. So religious fasts do see the virtue of a private fast getting in touch with oneself. And, and this, you can say there's a political theology to the fast. I, I would. And, and as a group, we would say that our spirituality in this fast is one that is so mindful about these men and they're in front and center have had to endure incredible torture, you know, and, and the trauma of that. But they've not taken it, not done in a passive way. We've really seen the hope and, and the inspiration from what they do in in response and saying, we're gonna fast. We're gonna we're gonna be active agents of our own change making. You've 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 obviously never met these men in Guantanamo. They've been there for almost 20 years. Some of them, they're they're growing old there. Eventually, some of them are gonna die of old age there. Um, why, why do you feel connected to them? Uh, you're not Muslim, are you? Not that that makes I any have, difference. They they are people. How, how do we meet? How do we meet people though? Um, you know, Muhammad al-Slehi is uh, now making his, himself known to us by way of, uh, you know, 
conversations uh, through through video in the conference that was a year ago. Uh, I was there. Yeah, I got there just in time to see his lovely face smiling and beaming um, from Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, so often we've gotten word from men in Guantanamo through their attorneys. Um, and, and that has been another way that we've been meeting. But no, yeah, face to face. I haven't met the men. Um, but yet you feel something for them. I do. So what is, what is this feeling? Where does that come from? This distant connection, very close connection in which you're putting your body, as far as fasting, you're putting your body on the line for them. And you don't even know them. Oh, but I, yeah, I just feel that we uh, are seeking to know the men so much that I I. I the poetry that we read of the men is just one act, or the painting of an individual in Guantanamo who's expressing himself in his visions of a cavernous cave in black with a white egg-shaped exit um, gives me this sense, uh, uh, oh my, what a, what a beautiful soul here is, is, is captured. Um, and I'm, how, how do I meet somebody who you've never met. Who I've never met, right? But, yeah. but I can, um, in this community, I can find and, and center these men. So in the past, there's been our, our imaging and on large banners of, of their face. Um, have, you ever, have you ever imagined meeting them face-to-face and talking? And sometimes we have an image of people in our, in our, in our, in our minds, and then it turns out we meet them, and they're not like that at all. I want to uh, admit that through that film that came out in 2014, there was something about um, who I imagine that was Mohammed Al-Salehi or a Mozambique um, or something of the, the Tripton Three. These are, these are men who spoke English while they were detained, who were able to make incredible relationships with guards. And so I have imagined what it would be like to be in conversation with, these are the most sensitive, intelligent, uh, from what we've read, their insightful disposition allowed people to really take, take stock. Men, men who had a, a 9-11 perception uh, changing their faith. I read about this, this yesterday morning in the book called um, Place Outside the Law. But I, I am seeking to, you know, as I engage again this year, find the new book that a place outside the law that was just published in November. Get into the interviews with men who have been resi- released. Two years ago, there's a book by um, Boumedidine. Um, and Boumedidine's case that came forward for the habeas corpus was land-breaking into who I was as a 26-year-old then, um, so many years ago. We're talking about 2007, 8, coming to the Supreme Court. And Boumedidine versus Bush wins the, the right for habeas corpus. I'm in, at the time, um, I'm in Chicago, I'm a student, and have, have begun to collect with other people, and, and we begin um, embracing this, this imagery that had, had made waves to us through, through the AP of orange, and jumps, orange jumpsuits and black hoods, and beginning to surface the, that images on our campus. We, we form a collective to, to, do, to do activism. This is before you joined what? Well, it, it, it was the extension of Watt. Okay. So, so I was in three, 2005, I'm in Portland, Oregon at the time, and hearing on the NPR a, a report 
of 25 activists on their pilgrimage. They called it a, a pilgrimage. As Christian witnesses, they used the imagery of, of the cross and priests were among them. They, used, they had a mass outside of Guantanamo Bay Detention Center. And some of the people that are here today were, were, were there. We heard, we heard yesterday from Art Laffin about, about his participation in it. That's right. And I, I was, then three years later, it was 2007, getting to a community build in Chicago. And somebody who was part of Witness Against Torture, um, Carmen Trotta, who is now in New York. I've spoken to York, him many you, times. You know, he was the one to come over and visit us in Chicago and say, hey, guys, you want to do something to be involved in this? And uh, our community there was called Kairos Chicago, after the Kairos New York uh, group in New York that um, we were seeking to, like Daniel Berrigan, break open the word and quite literally follow its blood-soaked steps. So we were, as, as again, in that circle of, of Christians thinking about how we can really follow what it means today to be in the steps of, of Jesus. And that's the kind of activism model that I've been trying to work through. So your religion myself. really informs your, your activism. It, I see myself as somebody who's continually learning that it's, it's religion that's, that's a, it's a, it's a source, but it's, it's a community of, of faith that is something that we practice. And this community practices the beliefs that I, I most enjoy, right. a joyful resistance. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. And that's why you're here. I'm, I'm continually like fed by being here. Yeah, I want to come back to it. I want to know, see, see the people again getting charged, hear the stories deeper of, of where we're going even. It, I hear the humility of some of the, the veteran activists will come and say, I'm here because I need some direction. Kathy Kelly, two years ago, really may have been finding some dry bones with the Yemen, you mm -hmm. know, coming back directly from trips. the children were killed. You know, she was, and saying, this is a community I trust. Where are we going? This, that kind of humility, it's a sparking one. It's a sparking one for courage. She'll use that phrase, catching courage. And it's by being in community that we often catch up, catch up with each other. And where are the winds moving? You know, where are points of, of, of hope and strategy? One of the things that you try to do as an organization is be heard. Um, and that's why you go out and march in your orange jumpsuits, um, emulating the orange jumpsuits that the men in Guantanamo wear sometimes with hoods on it. I, I just imagine you're going to be doing some of that action. What does that do to the rest of us? You're a community, but aren't you kind of isolated as a community? How do you get others, and I'm talking about the great masses, to see what you're doing and feel what you're feeling? Or is that not important? Well, I do. Uh, is masses something that, uh, I love the idea that power comes and, and it's something that we all that we give and we, we have this consent that we all are part of the this powerful sense of government neighbor to neighbor though it, we're interested in engaging people pe person to person and if we can have dialogue through our actions if we can spark the curiosity in a beautiful way and spark a sense of this is a this is a soulful connection let me listen a little bit more I think Absolutely. I'm so happy to be a part of a beautiful singing of rebellion, like yesterday when we said, Rebel, 
you know, and to sing that word, it's it's a wonderful feeling to sing that word in light of of, of, the, of some panic that was maybe in some of our guts, right? And say, rebel against that war they sell. You know, rebel against those lies they tell. And that kind of energy, it's a transforming one, right? And and I do want to be heard in that, but I also am inviting people, I think, into singing with us. And that's where, yes, you can say, I am reaching a choir. I'm seeking out another person to, to join us, right? And maybe we are singing to the choir in that way when we are amidst each other who are progressive people. And, and yet we're all rationally equipped with an incredible discernment ability to trust each other in a democracy. And, and I trust that people who are um, skilled and ready to join in are also lighted up by these witnesses. I'm always, as an activist, finding that I'm actually like trailing behind incredible work that's been done for years. Very humbled by the 17,000 hours of pro bono work that went into the Bumendating case, for instance. Pro bono. Uh, law firms coming forward from the very beginning. And, 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 the, and the King's Bay Plowshare 7 um, work, work that's been done. I was there in Georgia for their one of their hearings absolutely yeah. very humbled by their renewed commitment and, and and appreciate that on april 4th they did their action you know 50 year the anniversary of martin luther, luther king's King. being assassinated right. yeah christopher spicer thank you very much for sitting down with us here in the um, in the church here and and good luck and i want to see this community grow so get that dialogue going thank you thank you christopher Okay, Don Cunning has joined us here at the uh, mics here at the um, First Trinity Lutheran Church Hostel. Um, you've been a member of Watt for a long time. You were on our our Barcrow Radio at the Iron Horse uh, Tavern last year, and uh, you're back again. How, how many years have you um, been the, involved with Watt? The uh, first year I came was uh, tw- 16. But I came about halfway through because I wasn't sure. <laughs> That I could do the uh, fasting. Are you fasting this time? I'm fasting this time. Yeah. It turned out not to be as bad as I thought it would be. So, yeah. so then for the next four four years, I've been I've come from the beginning. Right. Right. Stayed. Yeah. Um, I know there's a lot of things we could talk about, but I wanted to bring you over because at the um, circle this morning, Helen, who is the leader here uh, in, uh, of these of the organization, talking about not getting arrested. Yeah. That you're going to go out doing these um, protests. Uh, today you're going to go to the Union Station in your orange jumpsuits, um, but the plan is not to get arrested. Uh, in years past, the plan was to get arrested. Uh, let's start with that. Why get arrested? What's the point of getting arrested? Well, I think I think it's important to term it correctly: yeah. risking arrest. Okay, risking arrest. We we never come looking to be arrested, but we realize some of our actions could get us arrested. Mm-hmm. So that's. We start from that. I would yeah, but I mean, risking arrest means somewhere along the line there are arrests, right? It, prob- it means, wink, wink, yeah, well, I don't want to be arrested, but I'm sure I will be. What's the advantage of being arrested? Well, Is there an advantage? The, the advantage to what you, you want to accomplish? Yeah. Well, if you get enough people, for starters, 3.3% of the population can sway uh, lawmakers in, in their decision. But for me personally, the reason that I decided at times to be arrested 
is because I want to be known on the correct side of the ledger. In other words, if someone says torture is okay, I want to be able to say, no, no, torture is not okay in any aspect, any reason that I can. There's no reason to be for torture, just some sick mind being satisfied for his own needs. Right. The overall reason to be arrested is, is not to create uh, consciousness in the larger population, um, to have, them, have other people see you being arrested or have them read about it. It's for yourself. It's for myself first, yeah. but right. You, hopefully, by pe seeing people stand up for what's wrong, that they will also jump on the bandwagon. And, no, it's a good and, point. And grow this community. And grow this community, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. So, now, this year, the decision was made, and I didn't quite get who, who made the decision, who was making the arguments, that you would attempt not, you would not risk arrest this year. Um, and the reasons being what? Why? Why not this year? Okay. Well, first of all, that's, uh, I did ask that question. Who is the organizers? Okay. And, and six, six people who were here. Were they were, uh, it wasn't a nameless. I was under the impression it was nameless face somewhere, but it was not. It's one of us, all of us. Right. Well, the nature of Witness Against Torture is that everything is discussed and things right. are out in the open. Right. But th this was made by a group of six that we will not risk arrest this time. Right. It wasn't made in a circle. And it was more of a practical reason not to risk arrest. It was more of a practical reason. Because you just don't have en uh, enough people here to do all of the jobs that need to be done when someone gets arrested. That's true. And it's, it's not just getting arrested. It's then a support right. that follows, and then the possible trial, then the cost of the trial, right. and whether or not that's really worth it. Yes. I mean, I, that's what I got. That's, that's correct. And, but also they said... The group who was arrested, of the people who were arrested last time, no one was indigenous, was not broke. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Manager being one who Manage. I'd like to talk to, right? Right. So when, there's, when people can't afford a, 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 a lawyer, then one's provided for them. That lawyer, one, the one person who's provided for satisfies the lawyer to do whatever needs to get done. Yeah, yeah. So, so if you can't afford it, then, then, then well, you, you don't yeah. want to risk arrest. Well, it can be very expensive. See, I, I also got uh, the idea that, um, that in, in being arrested, you want to try to affect the law. You want to try, you actually, some want to actually go to trial and get some um, verdict right. that then is put down onto the books. I know that, that's a long process. Um, well, some of the people I'm uh, affiliated with they always ask to go to trial. Yeah. Always ask to go to trial. In order to get a record of, to, of what it yeah, is right. the goals what's are. What, for what. Exactly right, right. Right. Most of the time, this, the prosecutor does not want to take them to trial, and they don't. Right. But my friend told me there were a couple of times that they, they went through to court, and they were, sometimes they're found guilty, and sometimes they're found innocent. So. And sometimes there's no finding at all. They just drop the case. Well, that's, if it goes to trial, then... Oh, it's right. It, it, goes, it goes to trial, goes of course. To trial. But sometimes you're right. It's dropped. My last time I was arrested, they uh, dropped charges for I even got. That Do you find that disappointing when the charges are dropped, or is that a like oh okay? Phew. It's like, a relief, really. It is a relief because like uh, for your, like I've been arrested in Vegas three times. Uh, oh, they like you in Vegas. <laughs> they like me a lot. <laughs> and so if if they want me to come back, and my and my lawyer can't stand for me, then I have to plunk down another half of half a grand to go out to Las Vegas. Wow. 
So in that case, yeah, I'm glad I don't have to. So that so so it, so these cases cost you some money. Whether yeah, whether I, yeah, it costs you money just to go. For okay, sure. right, yeah, right, just to go. Like right, right. there's there's a plane fare. Plus, you you don't go out there on someone else's dime. You you go out and donate to the stay sure. to the hotel or, or, or not the hotel, but sit, donate where you're staying for food. Oh, whatever. Expenses. Yeah, you got to live, live gotta while you're there, right? right. The pro protesters have to live along with exactly. everybody else. Yeah, right. yeah. So you disagree? We, we, that watch should go ahead and risk arrest this time, because that's what they're about. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I don't necessarily. I didn't disagree. I just want to know who the hell made that right. decision. Right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But if it, it's kind of sad that the man, <laughs> the process seems to have worn us down, because it. It does come down to money, and it's very expensive. And Talk about that. The, the process has worn you down, has worn maybe the group down. Has worn, has worn all protesters down, I do believe. Because it, like, it used to be you could, uh, uh, when you went to the Nevada test site, which is, uh, you had a uh, permit from the Shoshone uh, Indian Nation, because they, they claim that the uh, uh, test site is on their land. Mm -hmm. So they give you a permit, you're allowed to be on the land, mm -hmm. on their land. Uh, so they used to, the, the authorities used to accept that. Once you crossed the line, they arrested you, and they ran you through the process on site, and then they would say, if you don't hear from us, don't come back. Mm -hmm. right. well, we ah. don't want to see you again. Right. Exactly. Stay out of town. Stay out of town. <laughs> you did your thing, now go away. Yeah. Now, they, this, last time, this last time, which I wasn't there, uh, they arrested him, uh, $250 bond. If you don't want to pay it or you don't have identification, we'll put you in jail. They put some people in jail for two days. Right. So they get a little... And this is this approaches against nuclear armament. Nuclear armament, right. Right. And, and the test site. Right. No. right. And, and, you know, it worked. It worked over the years because now there's no longer a, a test period mm -hmm. alone in the atmosphere. Right. So right. It, it makes so, I mean, there's an effect. But yet th there's an effect on the system, but then there's an effect on the person who's an activist. I mean, because it's tiring, I imagine, to do this year after year. See, what? It's tiring. Yeah. Well, you, yeah. See, I got there for, I don't go out for the, I went out for the test site two, three years ago. But yeah. now I've been going out for the, for the drone. There's a drone base, a Creech Air Force base. The one replaces the other. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, there's never, there's a never ending battle, really, yeah. when you get down to it. Yeah. There's, I, I say people feel like myself. I feel like I don't do enough. I, I, I don't think I, I'm never ever going to do enough. And there are people in this room who do far more than I do, and they feel the same way. They just don't do enough. I don't do enough. I can't. You can't. You can't. If you try to do everything that's out, every wrong that's out there, you'll never get any sleep, and you'll never be home. I say, look, Don. Let me let me ask you this. It's like you're not doing enough. You're doing a lot. But you're not doing enough, according to what you said. And there's people out there, I'm sure, have yelled at you and said, go away. Yeah. <laughs> get out of here. What yeah. are you doing here? We hate you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, to get that kind of... When, and then you feeling like, I'm doing good work. Yeah. They're not seeing it. Yeah. I mean, that must make you feel well, maybe conflicted there. Uh, well, it kind of makes you feel... It kind of matters where you are. For instance, I've been to Kentucky a couple of times protest against mountaintop mining. Now, if anybody knows anything about mountaintop mining, it's a very horrendous thing to do. Yeah, it's a stripping of the earth. Yeah, it's yeah, a stripping it's a killing of the, of the ground. When they blow off that mountaintop, trees will never, ever grow there again. 
because yep. trees need dirt, yep. and they fill it up with rocks. They fill up the hole with rocks. So a tree is never going to grow on right. a mountaintop again. How disgusting is that? Yeah, so the coal industry, they or whatever they're digging out, it's like they're gone, and the people are still there. They had well, a mountain, well, and now they don't anymore. Yeah, here's what happened. When you go to, to Kentucky, we start out in the mountains. It seems like, seems like the whole system is against you. Go home, you don't live here, what are you, blah, blah, blah. But the closer you get down to the cities where the waste and the pollution from the coal mines is flowing, then you get support. <laughs> yeah. So it all depends where you're standing. But the thing about mountaintop mining, it takes about four or five people to do that. So one person makes a million, four people make a living until the coal is gone, and, and that you leave all this pollution and crap on. And then you've got hundreds of thousands of people that are suffering. Yeah, right. You've got the whole state of Kentucky suffering, except for those few people that, that, and actually not the whole state of Kentucky, the whole country. Because yeah. that waste goes down to the Well, it gets into the environment and yeah, the greenhouse gas right. and all that, all that stuff. And which right. makes it, my argument, there's never enough things to do, right? We started out talking about, about what? We got a nuclear, we got a nuclear. Yeah, we went from Guantanamo to nuclear yeah, to, yeah, yeah. what was it, was it? Oh, the drones, the drones yeah. and, and, yeah. and then the coal. Yeah, it, it, it goes on and on. It goes on and on, on, on. Well, you good people keep doing your good work. How are you? I, I haven't seen you in a year. Oh. You know what? I have to tell you. People ask, "How are you doing?" I say, yeah. you, "I have the best life." I, if I comp- anyone, anyone ever hears me complaining, give me a swift kick in the ass, will you? Because I have a great <laughs> life. No two ways about it. Don Cunning, thank you very much All for right, joining no us once again on Bar Crawl Radio. Right, thanks for asking. We're speaking now with Manasseh Saba. Uh, on March 27th, the U.S. District Court in 2019, Judge Robinson granted Monage um, a motion for a judgment of acquittal on the charge of illegally protesting on the steps of the Supreme Court on January 9th, 2019. And I was there. I was, I was covering it for my Barcrow Radio podcast. And um, all of you were so, so brave what you were doing up there. And I saw the police arrest you. And you went to, uh, you were taken back into a holding pen and your clothes were taken away from you. I mean, there's the whole story. And then for months after that, I, you, 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 there was a court hearing. In fact, I came to Washington to testify and you collapsed um, I, from, from, from the anxiety of it or from the pressure of, of, uh, of having to uh, defend yourself. And you did defend yourself. And um, there's a lot written about, about this case. And it's an important case. But today I wanted to talk to you about you, Amadege, as an activist, someone who has dedicated her life. You are of, we are both of some age, Mm -hmm. right? And you've dedicated this last part of your life to activism. And I wanted to find out why. As, yeah, I was born in Iran in um, 1947. Mm -hmm. And at the age of, in a military household, uh, but only my father was the only military person. My mother was from a secular type of commu- you know, environment she came. So this was, this was in the regime before? But under the Shah in 1947. Yeah, there you go. When the coup happened, uh, 1947, and I was six, or six years old mm-hmm. when the coup happened. And I vividly, vividly remember that. Wow because in my family, my grandmother's house, they were burning books for two days. 
because they know the horrible time is coming. This was after the so Mossad. So what kind of books were they burning? I think they all of the progressives and leftist book and secular, you know, all the, all the act- activists, because I had uncles who were activists, uh, in both in Mossad group and also to the party, the Communist Party. Uh, so, and they were active. And I would remember that my mother has this dove, white dove on her lapel. And she would say, I'm going to meetings. And I thought meetings meaning walking in the street. I didn't know what it was, but I was hearing this. And as I have grown up and thought more about, and I, and I think I became very an advocate activist very early on in my life through all of the different experiences of mine. And I almost was been a rebel, very quiet rebel. And not like the way I am, very noisy rebel. And, uh, Do you remember an instance when you were young that uh, which you rebelled against something? One of the things that I was doing, for example, and I think my father in some level, at some very weird level, uh, has encouraged that. Because we were, in my family, we talked a lot, we communicated a lot, and uh, my father, and the, the tradition, especially in my mother's family, that when you see grown-ups, you say hello, all the etiquette, and also kiss the person's hand. And this would bo- be boys or girls? Boys or girls, women or men. No, these are young people older than me, or yeah, us. We right. would kiss their hands. And at one point, my father said to me, the only person you kiss their hand is your grandmother, meaning my mother's mother, that he respected incredibly. And she has had a lot of influence on me. And no one else. And that, I think, gave me courage to be different, not to go with everything that people ask me to do. And it came, and I was very vocal at college when I see something, a teacher is not good, and I would talk to other people, and I would walk into the president's office and say, what the hell is going on, and get people with me. Things like that. And nobody expected me, somebody like me, who was always, always dressed up and made up and everything, behave like that. But I, if I saw something is wrong, I would voice it. And in my family, when they said, oh, you don't want you to do this in, in public, my father would say, I don't want, if you, whenever you leave this country, you can do whatever the hell you want to do. You can be naked, but here. And I said, why should we be lying? Why should I be pretending? I don't like pretense. And this is the thing that I came out of my household, but I picked it up. So that has got me, and I was never active politically active as it's known while I was in Iran. I became very much concerned and active during revolution when I was here and I couldn't go home. And I have been... You were a professor for a while. I was, yeah. I Actually, we came to the United States. We left Iran in 1974. We went to Montreal. We were there three years. And then we came to continue our graduate school work in the United States, especially because of my husband's uh, field. And I was, my field is political. I, I had a degree in Iran in nutrition, but I came to the United States uh, and I j- joined the pol- um, sociology, political sociology and development section of the Rutgers University that mm-hmm. existed that now does not exist. 
and also I studied women's studies at Rutgers. So, and then after that, during that time that I was in graduate school uh, and all that, I was teaching and I was adjunct, basically, uh, part-time lecturer and then adjunct at NYU and Rutgers and different places. And, but I was, when I was at Rutgers, I was very active all the time about everything. I became politicized at, during Sabra and Shatila, uh, Sabra and Shatila killing in, in Lebanon by Israelis. And that really was a huge light in my head went up because usually in my family and environment that I was, I was felt that Israeli, Israeli government was right with whatever the hell they are doing. And then that actually brought me very close to supporting Palestinian and continued with Islamic you know, revolution and everything else. So yeah, that's yeah. How, where I have been. And, but I, in, the, in terms of civil resistance that you have seen that mm-hmm. I do, I, from 2000, 2000, I was saying that we need civil resistance, maybe, and I had in my head, maybe one minute every, you know, every day or every week, everybody in the country stops wherever they are to think why we have to resist what's happening. This was the Bush administration. But I didn't know where to go, what to do, who to connect. Finally, in 19, uh, 19, uh, 19, no, 2004, I heard I think it's 2004, sometime in 2004, early 2005, that I heard that there is a mass demonstration and civil rights, uh, civil resistance, which many people call it civil, civil disobedience, happening in Washington against the war. And I said, I'm going. This is the war in Iraq. It was war in Iraq. Yeah. And I was act, you know, I was in the New York when, before that, and I was actually active. Uh, with groups around me uh, against Afghanistan also. I didn't think that we should go to Afghanistan. And uh, so I went. My husband came with me, and he was scared deadly. And I had no clue (laughs) what I was getting into myself. Were you scared? No. I am very rarely scared. But just to, as a, as a, as a side, I have been scared in past two years, three years. And I tell you later on what it is if you want to know. But anyway, I went there, and a friend of mine was there also. He came, and they came and stood out in the street holding sign and watching to see, well, how am I going to get arrested? We were there for a the whole day, and I got arrested at 4 o'clock. I was the one so you, the you have people that know you that know who you are and know that you're going to go over the edge. You're going to yes. do something that's uh, going to go beyond risking arrest. Yes. And I, I risked arrest, and, and that was my first time. And I risked arrest, and I was in jail. Actually, this is something important that has left with me. At 1 o'clock in the morning, an officer who came to talk, register me and do that, he said to me, when he realized I'm from Iran, he said, do you like that country? With a very sour face. I said, I love that country. Yeah. And he said, how about here? I looked at him and said, if I didn't love this country, I would be like all the other idiots in the mall rather than be here. He looked at me and he walked away. And I got out and I came and it was incredible. And I got to go to trial with 41 different other people. And I became witness actually in that. And that started my whole civil resistance that I think is one of the most important especially to do at this time. Let me ask you this because we, 
I just heard earlier in a, um, around a meeting that you have in the morning uh, here here at um, the, the Watt events for this week, there's always that morning meeting, um, in which the decision has been made to not risk arrest. And this, this risking arrest was actually, and getting arrested, was actually your beginning, what you said now, to your activism, to your deep level activism, right? So what about now going out and not having that- Risky. Risking arrest as a potential outcome. <laughs> Does that change what's gonna to happen today and tomorrow? Yes. What, ha the, what happened last year actually in my trial, because I ended up being alone and I ended up being responsible for thousands of dollars of out of, uh, out of your own pocket as out of my own pocket but right. some people have helped and give some money but but still is nothing i have paid some of it less than half of it myself now but uh, some people have given some money here and there and i still owe a lot of money mm. um, but but because of that and because we didn't have a process to what like we did today that we need to get arrested we need to have training for people and we have to do all of that and if i didn't pay attention to it that was not going on and i have been doing this for a long time but other people might be here who haven't and they should not get this training and not information and here we talk about training of not the training of being arrested but you certainly have to be trained on how to be arrested, how to yeah, conduct how yourself. To when you are risking, what does it mean? What does right. it take? But then there's a whole, a whole group of people that need to support you exactly. once you sure. are arrested. Yeah, when we are arrested, we get support and people come and people greet us no matter what. It is about 48 hours later, whatever it is, they are there in the middle of the night and they take us to wherever we need to go and all that. So that, we didn't have got last time, we didn't go through the process. And we got arrested and we, two of us ended up being um, charged and... I particularly got mistreated uh, uh, by the superior police, superior court police, and my my so first the supreme, amendment supreme court police. supreme court police, right. and my first amendment was violated in so many different ways, yeah. which I am planning to file a lawsuit against. Them. Good, good for you. Good Try for you. to find a group that I would do that. But anyway, so this you're a warrior. Listen to me. If my go if my government violate my first amendment right. The constitution that I always carry in my uh, in my pocket, wherever I am, it's my dread line. I have experienced three, two dictatorships, a theocracy and a military one. And it's very painful to me to know that I can afford it. I can afford to get risk arrest, get arrested, go to jail, pay the fine, go back and forth to Washington, whatever it is, and manage it. I can maybe lose one, one weeks of night food, dinner, but, but if I, who is able not to do it, who is going to do it? All the people who have children and work and everything else. I am retired, I'm, I'm, seven, I'm going to be 73 in a month, in less than a month. And so I think it's my responsibility, and I have three grandchildren. It's my responsibility to my grandchildren to hold children of this world coming. It's really painful to me when I think about children and what's happening to them. So now that we, we're not risking arrest, are you all, because I'm just, I'm just watching, yeah. I'm a witness to witness yes. against torture. This is going to change the, 
it's going to change the feeling of these actions now for you? It, it does, no, but I go to other events that is not arrestable also. Yeah. But what it does actually to me tomorrow, especially tomorrow morning before the fire drill, I am going to risk arrest for fire drill, for the environment, because I think the environment and militarization and torture and everything are very closely connected. Right. Uh, Say something about the fire drill. Fire drill for uh, climate, uh, for the emergency, incredible emergency, and Greta Thunberg told the world about it. And the young girl. She has been, uh, the, yeah. she's 16 years old, um, that she was so outraged about the responsibility of the grown-ups, though she had taken and she has mobilized millions and millions of grown-ups and kids around the world, is that is tomorrow, and Jane Fonda has picked up on that, and for past, I don't know, 17 weeks or something, every Friday that has been a fire drill, and people have been risking arrest. Tomorrow is going to be a very heavy day because I'm planning to risk arrest with that, because uh, with the environment, because I, I have no religion. I start at the age of 14, I left religion, uh, and, but environment is my religion. Human rights and environment is my religion, and I think these two are so connected. The war and environment and U.S. military is the largest pollution in the world, yep. and, and the Guantanamo is part of that war, and environmental problem we have is part of it. It's such a big thing. I love your idea of the one minute to resist mm -hmm. or one minute to think about. To stand up. Yeah. Uh, it might, might, might be a, a great thing to kind of push Maybe push we can forward. organize that. The one minute to resist. Just stop. Just one minute. Just stop Just for one. one minute. You are in a car, wherever you are. Everybody stops. And everybody, you know, they have stopped to think about what the problem that we have to resolve. There we go. There we go. Thank you very much, Manaje Saba, for sitting down and talking to us. I've been wanting to do this for a while. Thank you so much. And we'll do it again. It is such an honor to oh, know you honor. and be with you uh, and be able to tell the stories. There's more. And where we come and where we go. There's many, many, many yeah. stories. And it, it's, it's my honor, totally, you know, to have you sit here at our, at our so table. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. We're talking now with Mark Alvarado, a longtime member of Witness Against Torture and one of the main organizers here. Uh, we spoke well, with I you. I don't know if I would. No, I don't no? know if I would say. I that. always thought, thought you were kind of like a force here. I, I, everybody, I think everybody who's you here were. Uh, has has different roles and whatnot. And yeah. People st will step in and out uh, in terms of. Uh, well, let's put it this way. Uh, I, I think uh, one of the one of the terms that uh, one of my that my partner likes to use uh, is that uh, we're a leader full. Leader. organization right but yet you're right. leader full but yet no one actually takes leadership um, in the sense that everyone is can say what they want to say and everyone has the can, can put their input in it's very democratic it is it's one it of the is. most democratic organizations I've ever experienced in the sense that everyone is respected all ideas are respected uh, even Certainly. if you disagree and it's kind of like uh, maybe getting under your skin a little bit you try to kind of that's what I saw it's like you try to you try to respect that other person Right. Uh, Absolutely. It's uh, 
we, we all try to we all try to share space. Yep. 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 To, to tell me, I, we talked last year a bit, and you were on my uh, in pod in our episode uh, Barker Raider number twenty nine, but I don't think I actually got into like who you are, where you come from, that that oh, sort yeah, of thing. Sure. We talked about food. We talked about food and how your partner took away your your consciousness of food. You were breaking fast here at uh, Witness Against Torture at the end of the week of protest, and you said, I'm going to really think about this food. I'm going to be conscious of oh, eating absolutely. of the food. Oh, I love food. I'm going to I be love in, food, so I really want to be intentional. I want, right, I'm <laughs> going to enjoy it and get the full thing, and then it didn't work out. Well, my, my partner has, uh, has a, a lot of food allergies, right. so I will frequently... All right, um, I'm going to I'm going to address people to go to that podcast and get it because it's a really cute story. Oh, wonderful! Yeah. Great. Yeah. <laughs> it's episode 29 of Barcore Radio. Mark, a little bit about you. Where are you from? What do you do? Sure, sure. Well, I guess currently I I live in Cleveland. Cleveland is home now. Cleveland, Ohio, uh, where I am a program associate and a full time volunteer uh, with the Interreligious Task Force on Central America and Colombia. And what do they do? Uh, This is a a Latin American solidarity organization. Um, Our work is, I would say our work is primarily education, popular education. Education about Colombia? About Colombia and Central America. IRTF, the Interreligious Task Force, uh, is one of the the Central American solidarity organizations that sprung up in the 80s um, when all, when, you know, when the... I guess officially declared hostilities. The civil wars in uh, in Central America were taking place. Mm-hmm. Um, by the end of the 80s, when when uh, you know those civil wars, when the official hostilities, the official declared hostilities had ended, uh, many of these uh, solidarity organizations uh, dissolved. Uh, IRTF stuck around. I think uh, the decision was made. Uh, to stick around because there was an understanding that uh, oppression, repression does not stop. No. And, and, and we certainly know. I mean, this I, I would is, imagine is, that... It's all about, about feeling it and doing it. Oh, yeah. Oh, and we're good at it. Yeah. We're great. We've been <laughs> good at it for a long time. Yeah, yeah. This, this America's great thing is... Uh, yeah, well, maybe we are great, but we're great at something. We're, you know, we're great at oppression. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's 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 good business for us. Right. So. Right. So you've um, been working with this organization now for uh, just over three years. Okay, uh, it's good. actually easy for me because I can I can always point at November 9th as my anniversary with IRTF. Right. Um, my my partner is the is a co-director of uh, the Interreligious Task Force. Oh, so you see each other all the time. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, no, yeah, we worked together. She she brought me on. We met when I was, uh, um, I was a full time volunteer. Um, I don't know how I got into this whole full time volunteering thing, but you know, <laughs> yeah. Um, but at that's, the time, that's, that's anathema. The full time volunteering. How does that work? Well, out? you know, I mean, at the time. So this was the summer of 2016. Um, I had just, I had recently moved back to Cleveland. I'm originally from San Antonio, Texas. Um, but I had I had come to Cleveland in the Alvarado. Uh, you're Me- Mexican descent. Yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, on my father's side, uh, my father uh, was in the Foreign Service uh, back in the uh, back in the 60s, uh, which took him around the world and eventually to Vietnam, where he met and married my mother. They married in Vietnam, and then he brought her back to uh, wow. 
He brought her back to the United States. So I am I am of uh, Mexican and Vietnamese. I descent. see both in your face. <laughs> I'm sure you've heard that before. It, it gets well. I, I get a lot of you know. What are you? You know. Uh huh. Which. Yeah. That is what it is. Yeah. Um, well, it's a nice mix. Uh, it works I'm out a, for me. I'm, I'm take happy a, with it. I'm gonna take a picture just so. Okay. <laughs> I feel like I feel like right, I should point out if, if that picture is uh, yeah. if that picture is is for the audience that I am not wearing a, a border patrol uh, shirt. Uh, <laughs> there it is, U.S. Border Patrol. I see it now. Ah, uh, but it's not it's not border. It's it's uh, oh. U.S. Murder Patrol. Okay. Yeah, a little takeoff on the on the Border Patrol logo there. Right, U.S. Little, Mor- little murder Patrol there. because that's what they are. That's what they do. Uh, <laughs> I just want to point else that. that you that, that that you're involved with, which is uh, border conflict and. And uh, protesting uh, our our policy at the border. Well, you know, yeah. as a well, as as a as a man of you know of of, of uh, partially of Mexican descent, and also as a as a uh, as a uh, a volunteer with a Latin American solidarity organization, uh, certainly border conflict is is one of our uh, issues uh, that we are working on. Border conflict, not I mean, not in the sense that you know there there are skirmishes at the border, but it's really. Uh, you know, we're working to uh, to help people understand why why there is an exodus uh, from Central America, why so many people are being forced uh, to to flee from their homes, from their from their homelands, from their countries uh, to the United States, and and they're being they're being stopped at the border. How did you get into activism? What was the first impulse? What was it that said it's like this is what I want to spend my time doing? Something happened. Okay, uh, because it's it, there was throughout my life there's there have been a, a number of I guess impulses or whatnot. I, I mean, yeah, my father was uh, uh, my father worked in the, the nonprofit management uh, sector. He was uh, he was with the United Way for many years, um, and when he was no longer with the United Way, he still worked as a consultant. And uh, it was. You know, when he was alive, uh, it was well known that, uh, you know, if you were in San Antonio and if you were trying to form an organization and you needed to put together a board and you needed to find funding and you just, you wanted to help people, but you need to figure out how to get going. If you asked around long enough, eventually someone would say, oh, you want to talk to Richard Alvarado. He's the, he's the guy to help you out. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think... You know, from a young age, uh, the idea of uh, of public service uh, as being a good and worthy thing to do was was instilled in me by both of my parents. Uh, you know, my mother, you know, having having come over from Vietnam, um, and uh, you know, having having had a rather difficult life. Uh, had she had she well, your mother, she would have been very young during the war. Uh, yeah, I, I, oh goodness, she, uh, yeah, she would have been in her twenties. Uh, okay. At the time, during the during the Vietnam War. Yes. Right. So she has memories of it clearly. She does. She does. Right. Well, and you know her. I mean, uh, you know her family was originally from uh, the north of Vietnam, uh, and they uh, they became refugees uh, after. Uh, after the the Viet Minh, uh, you know, managed to you know chase the French out, mm-hmm. um, but you know, because uh, because Western 
hegemonic powers are what they are, uh, the, the country was forced to split in half. And uh, my mother's family uh, actually became refugees from the north. They fled to South Vietnam um, for, for a number of reasons, and I won't get into all of that. Sure, um, sure. But that must have informed your own activism. I mean, did your mother get involved with that at all, with what your father was doing, or did she have her own? Not so much. And actually, I wouldn't, I wouldn't even say that uh, either, either of my parents really worked as activists. Mm-hmm. You know, they worked in social services. Um, you know, my father, I mean, in Vietnam, my father was in the Foreign Service. My mother was a social worker. That's how they met. Right. Um, you know, doing social work together. Uh, and uh, I, It seems to me there is a link between social work, that work that a, so, that a social worker does in dealing with people on the ground with real problems. And what you do here at Winters Against Torture, or any of your activism, in that you're dealing with these men who are out there in Guantanamo, who are who are suffering, isn't there some connection between this kind of human to human thing that a social worker has that maybe? Well, I would say that the connection is simply about knowing, you know, what is right, or mm-hmm. or knowing. The the connection is, as I see it. Uh, understanding that we each, as individuals, are members of community. And we have an obligation to our community and to the other members of our community. And this community is global, you know. Um, it's just not me and my community. It's just not me and my neighborhood. My neighborhood is part of another bigger neighborhood. Right, right. We, I mean, we're, it's... Mm. Yeah, I don't know how to put it, and 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 I and I want to you know I want to uh, I want to be clear uh, that um, in my time with 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 the interreligious task force with IRTF IRTF Cleveland, um, I have come to understand that there is a dramatic difference between charity and solidarity, and and much of the problems that we see. Uh, much, much of what we are fighting against um, comes from this idea that, you know, we here in the United States, and you know, in the most prosperous and powerful nation in the world. Um, well, I would we, say physically powerful. We're not powerful in a lot of different ways. No, we're not. No, we're not. But I mean, physically, we. I mean, and, we and have fiscally. Yes. Yeah. yeah. We yeah. we have. We have we have we have power in the way that a bully has power, and we have weight to throw around. Mm. Um, and unfortunately, that even even when even in our good intentions, we still throw our weight around uh, when we see ourselves as, you know, the United States as the the world's cop, or when. What I, what, I, what, what I love is um, that we call ourselves Americans, and we're the only Americans. It, right. We and talked so, about this before. Yeah, I mean, Chris, Chris Brand and I have decided that that word doesn't work anymore unless you're talking about I'm part of this continent, which right. is called the Americans. We're really Usians, and Usians kind of he works was well about that. Yeah. because we use people to get what we want. That's, so we're, we're good at it. Yeah. We're, we're good at being Usians. Yeah. And, Anyway, so so you're talking about community and and the 
the larger community and also the fact that that um, that there's a one-on-one -on -one connection between people that may inform your activism. Um, this community that you belong to here, this this is a community of activists. Um, wh what is your connection to them? What is your connection to, to Witness Against Torture or to your community of uh, that, that you work with in Cleveland? Um, well, I... Oh, and I was I was getting on the story, well, didn't I? Uh, and then I went off on all these tangents, and I apologize. No, that's all right. No, no, no. This is what this is what I do. Uh, well, okay. Uh, if I can go back a little bit. Yeah, um, please do. Please do. Go ahead. So I, I mentioned my father is no longer with us. Mm -hmm. uh, I was living, uh, I was living in uh, the Boston area uh, for about a decade, and then uh, in 2012, my father uh, was sick. He uh, he was diagnosed with uh, glioblastoma. He had a tumor on the left side of his on the left side of his brain, and uh, I left I left Boston to uh, go back to to San Antonio, uh, to uh, to Bear County, uh, where San Antonio is located, um, to uh, to be with my father in his last few months, and um, and that was in the that was the uh, summer and fall of 2012. Uh, so there was a, there was there was an election, you know, or rather there were campaigns. It was election season. This was uh, at the time uh, Obama was running for his second term uh, against uh, Mitt Romney, mm -hmm. and uh, I I spent these few months with my father uh, on. On a farm that my family, you know, that used to be in my family, uh, in Southwest Bear County, outside of San Antonio, and it was just the two of us, kind of out in the middle of nowhere, um, with uh, not much to do, and uh, we watched news all day long, mm. every day, um, and you know, at this time, I still considered myself something of a, of a liberal. I would say that my 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 views are certainly more radical now, um, and uh, I've I'm I've eschewed you know neoliberalism and you know and all that goes with it, or at least I'm working to. Uh, but at the time, uh, we spent a lot of time watching MSNBC. Certainly mm -hmm. <laughs> not Fox. No, certainly not Fox. <laughs> yeah. But we we spent a lot of time watching MSNBC with its you know somewhat sort of liberal bent and um, you know just watching the news all day every day uh, and you know having already had you know you know some these values instilled by me by my by my parents that you know it is it is good and it is worthy to 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 uh, to work in service uh, to your community to your to your fellow human beings uh, wherever on this globe they may live. Um, you know, just during that time, and uh, I don't know exactly what it was, but the day my father died mm -hmm. uh, was the day of the inauguration. My God. Uh, so uh, I, my father was able to vote. You know, in, in his last election, we, you know, we went to the polling place and, you know, I was able to assist him. Uh, and, you know, I mean, at this time, it, you know, he was having tremendous difficulties. The, the glioblastoma, 
uh, made movement on the right side of his body very difficult. And he had speech aphasia, so he knew what he wanted to say, but when it would travel from his brain to his mouth, it wasn't happening. And, uh, and he, he, could, he could have uh, sent in an absentee ballot, no? Oh, well, we voted early. Okay. We, we voted but you went early, down but not polling. an absentee ballot. You went down uh, to the, the polling place. We went to the polling place. He was able to walk right. some, his, you know, in between radiation treatments. His, there is his, something about going to the polling place that to me has a, yeah. a resonance that, uh, that I don't think an absentee ballot would. But, but this, so this, these two events happen the same day. I mean, oh, well, no, uh, no, we had, I mean, we voted, you know. No, I uh, mean, it's his death and the inauguration. Oh, yes, yes, I beg your pardon. I'm so yeah. sorry. No, that's it. Yeah. Um, I mean, you must have been totally split. I mean, could you pay attention to the inauguration at all? Well, I did. Because at this time, uh, well, at this time it was inevitable. My father had, yeah. uh, had lapsed into a, uh, an unresponsive state Um, so he he had been provided with a hospice bed um, and you know with uh, with medication basically to 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 ease his transition Mm -hmm. it was uh, I mean we were ready it was you know it was going to be any day any minute now so I, I sat there in the living room watching the inauguration with my father with the, the volume way up because I don't know what he took in. He may have been able to hear it. Uh, You're trying to share this with him. I, I tried, yeah. You wanted to be with him during this wonderful moment. I did. I did. Yeah. Um, <laughs> wonderful moment. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, 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 want to, uh, yeah. I want to make clear that, you know, now in my activism that I've, you know, that I've been brought into movement work, mm-hmm. uh, I, I now consider all presidents to be criminals and whatnot. And I don't, you know. Yeah. Uh, and, and certainly I, I, I feel that our previous president was, uh, you know, far, far better than, you know, what we have now. Uh, but I think it's important to know that, uh, you know, every, every leader must be held to account. And they rarely are. Um, All right. But uh, maybe, that's me going maybe off the, on a tangent. Maybe the wonderful <laughs> moment is the moment of you sharing this with your father. It, it, well, it was. This it connecting was. thing, which was kind of the theme I think we've been developing here, this and, idea and of connection. We, and, you know, we'd been, we'd, been looking, we'd been looking to this moment for months because, as I mentioned, you know, yeah. you know my father, you know, with all of his the, the difficulties that glioblastoma had, you know, um, it was what we were doing for six months, just following following different campaigns following you know all the all the the run-up to the elections uh so so this was important for us and it was important that i could and i was grateful that i could share that moment with him um and when the inauguration was over and you know beyonce had had sung her song and (laughs) i uh i turned the tv off and i don't know Maybe it was because we had been aiming towards this moment for several months, but I, I went to my father and I got up real close to him, you know, so that he could hear me if he was, if he was hearing anything. And I just wanted to assure him that, you know, uh, 
you know, I, throughout my adult life, I, I, I had been, I wouldn't say aimless, but I had never really established one career. I went to music school, and that's what brought me to Cleveland in the first place in the, light, in the late 90s to, to attend, uh, you know, conservatory there. Um, once upon a time, I, I wanted to be a, a classical violinist, you know. That didn't work out. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a very difficult field to get into. Um, and I, you know, worked different jobs through the years. Um, and your father worried about that? He did. Yeah. He did. Um, so I wanted to assure him after the inauguration was over, it was just something came over to, to me, and I, uh, I went to his bedside and said something along the lines of, you know, it's okay. I... I have, I have an idea, I have a direction now. I'm going to go, I'm going to work in public service. I'm going to follow, I'm going to follow in your footsteps some way. I'm not going to do the exact same thing that you did, but I understand that I've been given a lot in my life. And, it, and it's not as simple, it's not as simple, you know, it's not as simple as just, I want to give back. But somehow or another, I, 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 I wanted my father to understand that I was going to pursue a life in service and that I was going to be okay. He wouldn't have to worry about me, that I was, I was going to figure something out. Yeah, you have. I think so. I hope. Um, I think he heard that. I imagine that he did. Uh, after that, I, I went to the kitchen to do some dishes or whatnot. And at one point, I realized that um, it was hard to tell because, you know, he, he, he had, uh, you know, his bed and, you know, he had, a, you know, the various, you know, machinery around his bed. With the oxygen. To, you know, and, you know with, the, with all the, the noise it was making. And uh, I noticed that... I wasn't hearing the oxygen quite the same way. Yep. And I, I went over, and that, and that was it. He was gone. Yeah. While you were doing the dishes? At some point. Yeah. Um, do you, do you, is this something that you carry with you now? Is yes. This? Yeah. I don't think of it all the time, because yeah. that was, uh, that was uh, oh, wow, that was seven years ago now, right? That was January of 2013. Um, Mark, can I say you're a lucky, lucky guy? I think so. Have that experience? I think I am. With your father? Yeah. Extremely, amazingly, I didn't have that with my father's death. No, it was a. But to have those, what, seven months with him? About six. About six Six months. Six months, yeah. You and him? Just the two of us. It was, oh, God, it was difficult. I bet. It was hard. I. I still. I still see him sitting on the couch and moving in this this extreme discomfort that he was in and uh, not being able to not being able to say what it was, but um, I think he was I don't know, I think something was telling him to hold on. Maybe. Maybe. Until maybe he just needed some assurance from me. Uh, and 
I don't know. I'd like to think that. I'd like to think that uh, he was just waiting me for me to, I don't know, give him permission to leave. I think there's a truth to that. Possibly. Yeah. So, um, yeah. I wasn't, so moving on from that, I wasn't uh, planning to stay in Texas. I ended up staying in Texas for about another year, you know, helping out uh, family with a couple of things. Um, but I had in my mind that I was, I was going to go and I was going to find where, you know, I was going to find my next home. So I, I inherited a, an O2 Honda Accord from my father and I loaded all of my, all of my possessions into it. And I took off around the country for a few months, uh, to take the, the great road trip that I, I had never taken, uh, before. Because by this point I was I was uh, I was I was in my mid thirties at this point, uh, and uh, I had I had been wanting to travel the country for a while, and uh, so I did, and with the idea that eventually I would find uh, where I was going to live. Um, but I ended up going back to Cleveland, uh, which was kind of always at the top of my list. Uh, I had gone to school there; I'd lived there before, and also quite importantly, uh, my brother lives in Cleveland okay. and I when I wasn't when I was living in Boston I would I would travel to Cleveland to visit my brother often um, and so I, I I went back to Cleveland and I I started looking for work started you know trying to figure out what I was going to do I I hooked up with uh, some street medics during the RNC which took place in Cleveland. The Republican National oh. Convention was in Cleveland. Forgot about that totally. Uh, so I, I got myself some street medic training, and and uh, during the RNC, I you know roamed the streets of downtown Cleveland with uh, with other uh, street medics. You know, mostly you know uh, <laughs> reminding people to drink water and you know treating blisters and things like that. Um, and uh, after the RNC, my my brother, uh, who I, I suppose, you know, took up my the my father's mantle of you know okay who's going to look after Mark because you know we 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 Mark's Mark's your older brother. This is my older brother. Yeah, certainly, and uh, certainly much more responsible. You know, I. I was the artist, and I was the one who, you know, kind of... Yeah, but you're also the one who took care of your father in his last six months. Well, because I was able to. Yeah. I, I wasn't leaving anything behind. My, my brother had established roots in Cleveland, mm-hmm. and, and me, with my, with my musician's heart, you know, I was still wandering, in a sense. Even, you know, even in one place, I was still, I was still all over the place. So there wasn't much for me to leave behind. And it was actually I went back to San Antonio because I was talking with my brother on the phone, and he um, he was talking about taking uh, job interviews. He works he is a he and he works in community development 
in Cleveland, in a city where you know that kind of work is, you know, very important. Um, yeah, you're all you're all kind of in this same field. I mean, as far as social work, community development. I've had a lot of good examples. Yeah, I've had a lot of good examples to follow, yeah. uh, including that of my partner, who brought me into the movement. Really. Uh, so I beg your pardon, Alan. Finally, getting to to, to your question. <laughs> I think you've been answering it all along. Um, my my brother turned me on to uh, there was a a workshop being provided, uh, or rather, there was a call for organizers uh, for a presidential campaign. And uh, at this time, you know, both the, 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 the Republican and Democratic National Conventions uh, were over. So there were only two major party candidates uh, at the time. Uh, so I, I, went to, I went to see if I could get some work as an organizer, but I didn't have enough experience. But I was asked if I was willing to volunteer. Uh, and so I did. So I became a volunteer fellow with... Well, not the Trump campaign. We'll, we'll say I, that I, much. I didn't think so. No. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, roughly seven days a week from like nine in the morning till 10, 11 at night. Um, I was following around, you know, paid organizing staff and uh, training, training to organize. And that was and that was really why I got into this campaign. Like a lot of people. Uh, I couldn't conceive of the idea that Trump would actually win this election. So for me, I joined this campaign for experience. Right. I was not a true believer. It wasn't going to make any difference. You just wanted to learn how to do it. Yeah. Because well, he wasn't going to be wanted, elected. Well, I didn't think so. I didn't think no, so. None of us did. And, and, I, and, and I understood that you know, Cleveland was a very important place for this election. Ohio's you know, always, like they say, a battleground state. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and it was certainly important to, when you consider the demographics of Ohio, and you consider that Cleveland uh, has, you know, that, that in a state that is, I want to say, almost 90% um, white, and I beg, I beg pardon for using the word white, I mean, I, I think of whiteness as a social construct, and I think that's something yeah. that a lot of people that you know, and, and that understanding is you know, is 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 in the national is in the you know the, is in our societal discourse now, and I'm grateful for that. Yeah, we, um, we need to continue seeing this as a, as a narrative. Yeah, white white as a story. Uh, but in a state that is you know, heavily white, uh, Cleveland is a city that is uh, majority people of color, um, and you know African descendant. And so it was certainly important to turn out numbers, as, as many voters as we could in Cleveland, uh, to try and sway the state. Of course, you know, we know that we were ultimately unsuccessful. But for me, I, I didn't have any, any tremendous ideological affinity um, with the candidate that I was supporting. My idea was, I'm going to get experience. Yep. And after this election is over, I and I know how the election is going to turn out. That was my, my that was how I felt at the time. I am going to find work as an organizer here in Cleveland, and I'm going to work to hold my my new president's feet to the fire, because you know, because every every you know leaders need to be held accountable, and they never are. And we've certainly seen that 
now. There is, yep. there's no real accountability uh, for our leaders. And then November 8th turned out the way that it did. And the next morning, you know. Is that when you turned from liberalism to, uh, to more extreme activism? Well, that started it. Yeah. I would say, well, it was, it was happening. While I was volunteering with this campaign is when sure. I met my partner who, as I mentioned, is, you know, co-director of the Interreligious Task Force of Central America. Oh, can we? Okay, Chrissy Stonebreaker Martinez. There we uh, go. Co-director, uh, and if I may, uh, you, you know, you can find out more about us at irtfcleveland.org. Irtfcleveland.org. .org, okay. Thanks, Alan, I appreciate it. That's, sure. Yeah. So the morning after the election, you know, Chrissy is... Uh, I'm, have, I'm having myself a little cry, I'll be honest. A lot of us did. Sure. And, uh, you know, Chrissy, who at the time, um, and she's, I mean, she really, she was already teaching me a lot even before I was brought into the movement. Uh, you know, when we met, you know, it was, she would say that, you know, oh, it's, it's good that you're, you know, volunteering with this campaign. But it, it was kind of a, you know, oh, that's cute. Everybody's got to do that once. I've come to understand that, uh, well, I'll put it this way. She would say to me that, you know, she doesn't work on uh, candidate campaigns anymore. She works on issues mm -hmm. uh, because the issue will not let you down. I think that's very wise. Yeah, I think a lot of people are approaching it that way. We'd, we've had many programs on on issues. I, You know, I always, I always say that. Gun issues or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, no, there, I mean, and there was a, a great deal of wisdom uh, there that Chrissy imparted on me. And I, I, I always say that my real education started at the age of 38 when, you know, when I started getting involved and when the morning after the November 8th election, you know, Chrissy's, you know, saying to me, how you doing? Oh, I'm okay. I'm fine. Mm. <laughs> Having a little sniff, you know. He's like, well, you, you want to you wanna come to the office today? Come have lunch with the rest of the staff and whatnot. And, you know, maybe just try and, you know, decompress with everyone and, you know, and, and process, you know, what's going on. Yeah, yeah, I'd like to, I'd like to come and do that. That'll be, yeah, I'd like to do that. Yeah. She said, you know, maybe, I don't know, maybe if you think, like, you can, if you're willing to continue volunteering for a while, you know, maybe you'd like to volunteer with ARTF. Yeah, yeah, I think I'd like to do that, you know. As I'm, as I'm, you know, looking down at the ground and trying to hold back tears. Well, yeah, yeah I'll, I'll come along too with IRTF. I'd like to do that. Okay. You know. Yeah. Do, do, doing something is, is, is one of the cures yeah. of that kind of trauma. Yeah, no. I, this I, was a traumatic and I needed thing. It. I needed it. I really did. And so, so that was uh, just over three years ago. Yeah. And, yeah, uh, yeah that was November 9th, So that was, a, that, was, that was a big, a big change. It I mean, was. I mean, these were two. These were two big events in your life. The one when your, when um, inauguration and, and, and your and your father's passing, and then this coming in of a new era, Trumpish era, that kind of sent you on your way. Yeah. To what you're doing now, which is going going three years or so ago. I, I always say it's it's ironic because I you know, in in my in my organizing in my activism work, I I take great pains to say that this work does not end when the Trump regime is over. Oh, no, no, no. Uh, no he's just showing us who we are. Yeah, and, 
Well, and that's and that's just it, you know. And you He's know, made it in very a sense, clear. And thank you very much, sir, for showing us that. Because now maybe we can do something about it. And isn't that strange yeah. to have to have? I wouldn't say that I have gratitude, but I do say how weird it is that. Maybe I think Trump has could, actually helped the movement. We could take an advantage. We could take advantage of you all. We all could take advantage of learning who we are. Yeah. Because until you learn who you are, you can't become something better. And well, I and think that's the hope that I can bring out of this Trump era. Well, and that's certainly a very important thing. I mean, certainly, you know, in a, in a broader societal perspective, I, I like to say that the iron is hot, you know, and this is... Well, I've been saying it for three years now. This is that this is that catastrophe that we can't let go to waste. Mark Alvarado, thank you very much for sharing so much. Alan, thank you so much for with, having me with, I, I with, with us. It. Yeah, uh, it's it's been great. And um, keep carrying on the good work, you U.S. murder patrol guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, and if I if I may, I, you know, I want to I want to thank you uh, for for this platform, and I want to thank your listeners. Uh, and I want to say to all of you, you know, who are listening, um, don't give up. Don't give up. Uh, if I may say one thing really quickly, and this mm-hmm. is something I learned. The, the, the first fast that I attended with Witness Against Torture shortly after Chrissy brought me into IRTF, and it was November of 2016 and January of 2017, I came to D.C. for, uh, because IRTF has, has, has long, you know, brought people from Cleveland to participate with Witness Against Torture mm-hmm. in the fast. Uh, so after after a during my first fast there, and this, you know, January 2017, this is the, the month of the inauguration and so much is happening and you know, and people are really starting to get mobilized. A lot of people, I was part of this wave of people really getting mobilized for the first time. And I remember after one demonstration at the Pentagon mm-hmm. where we really didn't seem to get much of a response. Afterwards, I asked, you know, one of the one of the veterans of this movement, uh, uh, Cheryl, Cheryl Hogue. I'm pretty sure it was Cheryl I was asking. Who's who's with us today? And and she's and I think she said this is her 13th year. I think with so. Witness against torture. I remember going up to her and saying, Cheryl, I'm. I wouldn't say that I'm conflicted because I believe in the movement. I believe in this work. I really want to help. I want to be a part of it. But what were we doing just there? I mean, we're, we're demonstrating in front of the Pentagon. And most people who are walking by are, you know, actively not looking at us. I remember one guy giving us a thumbs up. And I remember more people just kind of sneering at us and, you know, oh, liberals, what are you doing? Blah, 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 blah. And really not getting a you know, response. And there was, there was no press. There was no media there at the time because this was part of a, a regular demonstration at the Pentagon, and I thought, what, what, what did we just do? What, 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 uh, what's the result? You know, what, um, what, what action, what consequence did our, did our little, yeah, you know, what difference did we, did we make just now? And I remember Cheryl saying to me, Mark, if nothing else, we're building community. And if that's the only thing that we're doing, it's still important. It's still worthwhile. And so I, and now, you know, having been in this work for, you know, a little over three years, um, 
you know, with all the wisdom that I've, <laughs> I mean, as still a young pup in the movement, I feel like, but you know, I've been at it for, you well, know, you understood what now. she said. I did. And, and I say that to people now when, when, you know, when people are, are new, when I meet someone at a, at a rally or something, um, when, uh, when, when young people, students get involved, you know, with work at IRTF, we have a lot, you know, we bring people in as, as interns and we try to foster youth leadership. Mm-hmm. Um, and whenever, whenever I see someone get a little discouraged and whenever, you know, someone is at a, at a demonstration or at a rally with me and they start to really, they start to really get down because there's always going to be the naysayers and the hecklers who come around and who say that, you know, what you're doing makes no difference. You're not doing anything. You're, you're pushing back against something that, that just is, you know, war just is. So this get is over it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. Get over get it. Get over it. You know, or that, or that line, or the line from the, you know, Peter, Paul and Mary, the great mandala, you know. It's it's been going on for ten thousand years. Yeah, Take you, your place on the Great Mandala. Yeah. You know? yeah. And but I I always remember you know what I was told, and I always I always make a point to say we are building community, and every time we do this, this community is getting larger, and we are building people power. And it's as long as we keep doing that, it's only it's only a matter of time before this community becomes the beloved community that we are that we are trying to that we are trying to bring about and i'm 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 going to try to bring this full circle here is that this community was being built by your father and by your mother and probably the people before them this this idea of community absolutely yeah absolutely and I, and i i appreciate you uh, actually bringing that up because you know, people always say to those of us who are visible, publicly visible in this kind of work, people always say, thank you so much for what you're doing. Thank you for your service. Mm-hmm. Thank you for your work. And I was pushed back against that and say, no, we're all in this together. We are building this together. We are building this community. There are no pedestals here. You can put leaders on pedestals and they'll be taken down. And that's the movement goes on. We are, we're, not, we're not trying to boost leaders here. We're trying to boost the people. We're trying to, we're trying to encourage, you know, as, as Christy likes to say, leaderful movements. Uh, we are all leaders in this. We are, all, we are all workers. We're all leaders. We're all followers. We're all workers. We're all human beings. We're all community. This is Alan Winston, this is Barcrow Radio, and this is a Barcrow Radio kind of an, uh, an extra because we're uh, back in the Witness Against Torture events here in Washington, D.C., uh, and I'm sitting now with Chrissy Stonebreaker Martinez. I didn't get to talk to you last year, and this year I'm trying to, yeah. I'm trying to get um, people that I hadn't talked to, and I talked to your partner, uh, Mark Alvarado. Mm-hmm. Uh, he told us about his last breaking of the fast last year. Yeah. And uh, how you messed up his plans. <laughs> and you had you don't know about that, but you do know about it because <laughs> you wanted to be so focused 
on <laughs> tasting the food and you kind of like mucked it up. Well, I have a lot of allergies. So I asked if I had. Well, that's not his problem. <laughs> I asked if. Uh, maybe it is. There was something, if he could taste one yeah. of my allergies yeah. in the food. Right. <laughs> and I didn't mean to, for it to be the first bite that he took. <laughs> and he forgot that he wanted to be conscious of that first bite. So he was saying this, this year, when you break fast tomorrow, Maybe I won't you interrupt him. Leave him alone. <laughs> say, Mark, I want you to pay attention. Yeah, savor. And then I have a question for you. Yeah. Taste this. <laughs> is, it, is it okay? Is it okay? Chrissy, um, tell us about yourself. Maybe Stonebreaker Martinez. Yeah, it's a great name. Yeah. Um, most badass name ever. Am I allowed to swear? <laughs> yeah, no, no. This this is my own podcast. You can say whatever you want. Um, Stonebreaker Martinez. Stonebreaker is Appalachian, uh, originally from Germany. <clears throat> uh-huh. uh, and Martinez is Colombian, in my case, and in the tradition of other um, Colombians and other Latinx folks. Um, one way that we resist patriarchy, Mm -hmm. (laughs) though it's not perfect because it's still patriarchal, is by um, taking both of our parents' uh, paternal names. So Mm -hmm. um, my parents are are Appalachian and Colombian um, and other things a little bit. But um, yeah. You got you got Stonebreaker Martinez, and, and clearly you use that as your professional name. You're co co director of the Interreligious Task Force on Central America and Colombia. I am. Yeah. Um, tell us about that work that you do. Mark told us a little bit, yeah. but what is your take on it? Yeah, we're this is in Cleveland. We are based in Cleveland. We are an international grassroots solidarity organization. Mm-hmm. Um, working on human rights issues that focus on Central America and Colombia and Mexico as well. And uh, we've been around since 1980. So in 1980, there were two women from Cleveland who were... um, And a lot of the work that I do is actually really, really painful. So um, I always want to give that caveat before I start my conversations Mm -hmm. because... Uh, it can be really hard and traumatizing for people, but two women from Cleveland and two women from New York were raped and murdered in El Salvador in 1980. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and so Clevelanders of faith and conscience who had already been working on Chilean and Nicaraguan refugee issues uh, came together to resist um, the killing of these women. And uh, unfortunately... Um, we knew that the U.S. was involved in training and funding the people who ultimately were charged with the crimes of killing these women, as well as many, many, many massacres in El Salvador. Um, About 75,000 people were murdered in a 12-year civil war there, and that included the majority of the country's remaining indigenous populations. And so these were white, well-educated upper middle class women from the U.S. and from the Catholic religion. And so their pictures were on the front page of every paper in the U.S. And um, that's a hard thing for us to be honest about because um, not it's not hard to be honest about it. It's a hard thing for us to uh, accept is the fact that they were there originally doing charity work and doing work for the church. And the church has done horrible things in the world. But not this time. But not this time. They were, they were writing to President Carter asking about that. Um, Jean Donovan, her father was a military contractor, and 
the story uh, goes that she he was a military contractor in Connecticut and working on helicopters, and she saw helicopters that she knew he was helping to engineer, flying over her head, only made for U.S. military contracts. And um, ultimately, the uh, Truth Commission agreed that, yes, the U.S. trained and funded the people who committed war crimes and crimes against humanity during the Civil War in El Salvador and really helped to fund the Civil War in El Salvador. And so their work changed from charity work to solidarity work when, after the um, assassination of Archbishop, now Saint, Oscar Romero. Uh, oh, the, I didn't know that. Yeah, their yeah. family, he died nine months before they were murdered, and their families and friends asked them to leave El Salvador um, because it was getting so dangerous, and they said, no, we would be abusing our privilege if we were to leave these children behind or these people behind, these villagers behind, um, and they couldn't leave the violence with us. So we're not going anywhere until they're safe. And they paid. They ultimately sacrificed their yeah. life for that. Yeah. And um, we're really grateful that they, uh, that despite their identity, they did offer us some uh, wonderful examples of what it means to be in solidarity, what it means to give up your privilege um, or to put your privilege on the line for something and what it means to use your privilege for uh, to offer safety to others, but also um, what it means to be just in relationship with someone. And they learn that from the Salvadoran people themselves. So, um, What it means to be in relationship with mm -hmm. someone. Can we unpack that a little bit? Uh, because I have a relationship with my wife, you have a relationship with Mark. Is that the kind of relationship we're talking about? Mm, I think that's one type of relationship. <laughs> yeah. But um, to be in relationship with other people means to honor and acknowledge and see each other's humanity. Um, and otherwise, it's an imbalanced relationship or um, or an oppressive relationship if we're not uh, if there's not equity and if there's not an equal acknowledgement of um, power in any relationship that can be an individual or that can be our relationships with our government our relationships with people who hold power over us that's very interesting <clears throat> the the recognition of both sides of the partnership mm -hmm. whether it's a person to person or it's a community to another community or a community to a state government or mm -hmm. or a family I mean all those are partnerships mm -hmm. and if one side doesn't recognize the rights of the other side mm -hmm. in a kind of a loving way mm -hmm. or the way that Romero was talking about in solidarity in solidarity with in other words we're, we're in this together mm -hmm. You're not going to have good outcomes. Yeah. And the reason why I came to this work is because um, because of my Colombian family. So I was um, primarily raised by that side of my family in many ways. My parents are uh, still together, but my father, um, both my parents were laborers, and they are now both disabled. And Not from their labor. Um, partly f uh, from their labor, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and... My but not getting compensation for it. N no, mm -mm, yeah. right. And my father worked second shift at a at a, a steel mill when I was growing up. I grew up in the Rust Belt <clears throat> in Youngstown, Ohio. Oh wow! And yeah, <laughs> everyone that's, that's says the that to of me. Some stuff. Yeah, well, because. <laughs> 
<laughs> Youngstown, I mean, the, our, our, our great leader has uh, yeah. made certain promises to the steel industry. That and he has is right failed. in the center of it. Yes, that yeah. he has failed and that we are trying, that I am trying very hard to get people in the Rust Belt to see um, how many of those failed promises are Why is it so happening. hard? This, it's like we're going all over the place, and I, yeah. I'll, I'll try to bring it all back. But why do you think it's so hard? For you, you know the people in the Rust Belt. Uh, uh, you, you grew up there. Why, why is it so hard for them to see that this man does not have their best interest in mind? Well, let, let's go back a little bit, and that maybe we can get there. Mm-hmm. Um, so my father worked second shift, and that was the only way that he could provide for his family. And so I only saw him on Sundays uh, when I was between the age of five and 17. So even though we were living in the same house, we literally never saw each other except for one day a week as if I was being raised by my mother. And um, my mom is one of 15. And so she she has six and 11 um, of her and her siblings um, made it to adulthood and nine of them are living today. And she has six sisters. It's amazing. And those women really raised me. And, and the Colombian struggle um, is really why I'm in the movement today. And that also really informs my, um, my experience in Youngstown and my experience in Cleveland and in the Rust Belt more broadly because I see myself and I, and I have experienced myself as... Um, as an outsider, I'm a first generation U.S. American, knowing that all people from the hemisphere are American. I'm a first generation uh, college student. Only out of all of my parents and grandparents, only one had a high school diploma. And so I didn't have the typical experience, I think, than, that other people had in my community as I was growing up. And I saw um, a lot of personal prejudice because of that and also Uh, a lot of extreme prejudice against my mother because of that. And so I do know these people, but I also have never felt like I quite fit in to this place. Um, This is, yeah, let's talk about Youngstown. Youngstown has this amazing union history. In 1937, 20,000 people walked off the job to protest their treatment in the steel mills. In solidarity. In solidarity, it's so beautiful. And over the decades, um, those, that labor movement has totally been dismantled in many ways, um, partly because of corruption, partly because of the design of systems of oppression, partly because, uh, partly also because of privilege, right? As people gained wealth, uh, as they gained power, they um, abandoned the solidarity that got them to uh, access that wealth and power. Um, and so... But also the wealth actually left Youngstown. Too. It also did. Yeah, it's a post-industrial place, right? right? We're living in a post-industrial society. And the height of, you know... W- the solidarity movement, the labor movement in Youngstown was really, um, really left too with with that um, disinvestment or that deinvestment in in the area and in industrial. But you say you want to there. talk to these people <laughs> and you want to make them woke. Well, I didn't say that though. Oh, okay. <laughs> though that wouldn't be, be terrible. Yeah. I want. I feel it's my responsibility. I feel um, I offer a unique perspective there. Uh, it's hard to live in the Rust Belt. It's really hard. It, it's it's hard to live in Ohio right now. Um, it's hard to live in a lot of uh, more cons- of states with more conservative legislatures. Even uh, our prog- quote unquote 
progressive, though they're not. Politicians and government officials uh, really don't have the interests of the people. Uh, that's been my experience in, in my state. And so I feel it's my responsibility and the responsibility of other people to, who are from a certain place to recognize where they're from and to know themselves. Um, and that's why I'm really living in the best of both worlds because I'm working in the Rust Belt in Cleveland, Ohio. on issues as well. Um, back home in my homeland of in my motherland, right, my my of Colombia. So it's it's I, it's the best of both worlds for you're me. Bring, you're bringing the two <laughs> together. The bringing two the two together. The idea of yeah. community and actually the physically the two communities. Right, and this is something that a lot of uh, migrant children experience. That you know, seeing the suffering of my mother and her family being so far away from her, their networks of support from the um, people that loved them and raised them um, was very, very challenging and contributed to, um, as did many other factors, one being economic, but to their mental health and well-being. And um, a lot of migrant children end up staying within 100 miles of their parents because of the suffering uh, that that migration sometimes causes by being severed off from your community. So and that, that's their community, and they couldn't find it other places. <laughs> but that actually, and Colombia is not their community either. Not anymore. No, no. that's it. Is uh, a common phrase um, is like neither here nor there mm -hmm. um, in in Latinx culture, but also in in other migrant cultures. And a lot of my friends display who I also identify. Um, like myself, as in, as displaced Indigenous peoples, and and or you know, um, first generation or migrant or Latinx or whatever, um, we say now that we are from both instead of from neither. We are full human beings, right? And if we want to have relationships that recognize our full humanity, we also have to recognize our our own full humanity. Um, and know really ourselves. And so because I'm a full human being, I know that I am completely of the Rust Belt and also completely of Colombia and of the Embera lands in Colombia and of the peoples there. And I know um, what it means to honor the land in each place um, in a way that, um, that protects it and that um, supports its growth and, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you're talking kind of a, of a unity of community mm -hmm. and from two different communities. Mm -hmm. And so we have a regional kind of yeah. community that you're kind of bringing together from the north and, and from the south. You also have a generational mm -hmm. um, connection that you have mm -hmm. um, in which, you know, the, the, the way that people are brought up and are, are, are migrated to places that are strange and they have to kind of stay there. And mm -hmm. you're now reaching back to the community of your of your um, inheritance, mm -hmm. right? But you're also of a woman community. You're a femme community. You're from yes. a femme community. I mean, <laughs> you said your your mother and had six sisters. And and, uh, well, there's, well <laughs> yeah. there's all kinds of communities. <laughs> Let's talk about the woman's community. Sure. Um, the woman's voice in Cleveland, Youngstown. How, how, how does that resonate? Is your organization Interreligious Task Force in Central American Columbia? I'll say it again because I think people should know Or IRTF it. Cleveland. IRTF, okay. <laughs> is it a female voice? Um, well, I think it's a voice... Because it started with, with protest against female 
death. Yeah, that's and true. And female protesters. I think in many ways, well, it's an inclusive community. It's a mm-hmm. really inclusive community. I'm the co-executive director of the organization, and my co-director identifies as a male. So we are uh, balanced in that regard, I would say. <laughs> but That's an interesting idea. <laughs> so he, he, he's a male. He's, uh, he he um, switched. I don't get the word to use to... Uh, to say so he uh, but he was at one time coming out of a woman's experience maybe and I, maybe that's too difficult to even, <laughs> even no unpack. actually he identifies as a male um, was yeah. assigned uh, male at birth um, my co-director um, but myself I identify as non-binary or gender non-conforming and so um, the idea of womanhood is is a tricky one for me it's one mm-hmm. that I honor and respect but also one that um, because of the age and time that I'm living, I can explore what it means also to have um, internalized masculinity and also um, to really to really try to understand the balance of, of um, how I live my life and, and what exists within me and, and what exists um, within my soul. And, yeah. yeah. But anyway, yeah. So these women were really the impetus for our founding in many ways. And many, um, many, many, many religious women, women of faith were part of our founding and continue to be um, in part of our leadership. We've always uh, skewed toward heavy female or gender nonconforming uh, leadership. That's true. And it's um, and that voice and I think the power of creative life right so so people with uteruses are people who birth things and they bring life into the world um, that is very much present in all that we do we've been talking about IRTF why don't you give us an example of what you do yeah so we um, primarily organize people to join the movement and recognize their place in society and understand um, themselves we uh, We're a solidarity-based organization. We're a grassroots organization. And our primary goal is to get people to be part of this work for the long haul, um, to recognize that, quote-unquote, helping people um, needs to start with understanding yourself so that you're not doing harm um, because you don't know yourself when you're you're helping others. Uh, And we take on 72 urgent human rights cases every year in um, Mexico, Central America, and Colombia. And those cases um, of advocacy are political, physical, psychosocial um, support for civilians who've been targeted in some way, Um, oftentimes teachers, preachers, environmental defenders, journalists, um, etc. Women who've been uh, criminalized for having miscarriages, all sorts of people are part of those cases. But um, we take on 72 urgent human rights cases every year, and that work really informs all of our education and advocacy and what we decide to organize around. But those cases are really emblematic of the societal ills that are happening, and those cases can really be connected to um, societal ills in other places, right? If you look at economic justice, environmental justice, racial justice, gender and sexual minority justice, and and anti-militarism in any place in the world, we know that you're going to see what the human rights context is. And so our advocacy happens um, with uh, Ohio senators and congresspersons. It happens with the United Nations, um, a partner organization of ours, the Fellowship of Reconciliation. 
is has graciously uh, appointed me as one of their United Nations representatives to New York. And so I'm able to leverage um, that relationship and, and make it possible to share more and more stories of the people on the ground who are human rights defenders um, and to more broadly get these campaigns out and about. But um, yeah, we're just doing really broad advocacy in, in the UN, in Congress, in the Inter-American Human Rights Court, the even the Organization of American States, just trying to make sure that people know um, the stories of struggle and resistance and also that um, the people who are putting themselves on the line or who have been forced to put themselves on the line because they're indigenous or because they're Afro-descendant or because they happen to live on some very resource-rich land or whatever, that they are protected. And so we partner with unarmed civilian protection organizations, of which there are only 42 we know about in the entire world. Unarmed civilian population. What, what, what unarmed civilian I protection. I feel like I'm I feel like I'm one of those, but... Uh, <laughs> yeah, you I'm, are. I'm unarmed. Absolutely. Um, so people who accompany other folks uh, in times of struggle, so we accompany them physically by literally being present um, physically. We accompany, accompany them psychosocially and spiritually by making it a, um, a priority to have dialogue and to check in with each other in relationship. And um, we also do that um, politically, wait, politically as well, I said physically, psychosocially, politically as well with these, with when people are being persecuted. But um, so unarmed civilian protection is just like it sounds, people who are unarmed, who are there to document and witness. It's like human rights fact-finding. It's, um, we might accompany a UN team, we might accompany another um, supranational organization or NGO to make sure that journalists and other media outlets know about conflicts that are happening because when the international community has their eyes on a situation, then um, people are less likely to do um, corrupt things. Sounds like you're a shield. A shield in many ways. Um, and, but we're doing this, we're doing this just because of the power of coalition and the power of relationship. It's not because we're um, international people that, that there's protection offered because we do accompaniment with nationals and internationals at all times in every place that we go. We've been talking very kind of in a way abstractly. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Can you come up with a concrete example sure. of something you've done that you're proud of? Oh yeah. And you um, have to name names just. Uh, yeah there are a few. Uh, one story I have is there's this friend we have named Moncho. He lives in the Magdalena Medio region of Colombia. Um, he is accompanied by an organization that we partner with very deeply, Christian Peacemaker Teams. And Moncho's a human rights defender. And he has gone into an indigenous cooperative mining community in this region um, to support those people and their livelihood. And the way that they mine is, is an artisanal form of mining that doesn't destroy the mountain. And that was a hard thing for me to to accept because I'm like, oh no, I'm against mining of all kinds until you realize, okay, well, if I'm not willing to give up these um, resources, using these resources, then we need to find more ethical ways 
to obtain them, right? Rather than blowing the top <laughs> off a mountain. Rather, just like mountaintop removal happens yeah. in, in Appalachia, in um, West Virginia. It also happens all over the world. And so um, we go to accompany Moncho, and he accompanies this um, mining community who has a hard time obtaining permits from the Colombian government because Canadian and U.S. mining corporations and a few other countries as well, but in this pa- in this case, um, Canadian and U.S. mining corporations um, are making it impossible for artisanal indigenous peoples to obtain a mining permit because they're um, working. Those mining companies are working with the government under free tra- free trade agreements. And what these mining companies do is they'll come in and they will bring in a workforce. So the people who are getting paid for the work are mostly not local people. So we're extracting wealth from a place and we're all not even giving the labor back to the local community. And those people will um, often uh, assault or harass the local populations and um, commit grave acts of violence that they know that they'll get away with because of impunity um, on the populations. And then when they've used up all the resources or when they've detonated the mountain completely and there's um, uh, carcinogenic uh, chemicals going into the water stream, and will continue they leave to go in for many, many for many years, years yeah. right? That, like in the case of El Salvador, ninety-seven percent of the water is not potable uh, because it has cyanide in it from mining. And the people of El Salvador got so fed up with that that they tried to ban mining, and they succeeded. And then they had to deal with, luckily they they won, but they had to deal with a CAFTA infringement lawsuit where the government of El Salvador was being charged with an infringement of a free trade agreement because they wouldn't let an outside mining company come in and continue to poison their water sources. It's ridiculous. Anyway, so back to Moncho in Colombia. So (laughs) we accompany these people um, who are... Uh, doing great work and the way that they honor these resources is so beautiful and Moncho's house has been um, destroyed by fire more than once he's been the the victim of arson multiple times and Moncho has been targeted by paramilitary and military forces in Colombia as he accompanies people Uh, there was a paramilitary member who came around asking um, for him by his uh, full legal name and no one knew that name and so luckily he was um, spared that day but we were accompanying Moncho just literally to hear his story and to make sure that in this time of um, threat where he was continued threats on his life continued threats of um, arson against his family that we could be with him physically, spiritually, psychosocially, politically, and we have people who regularly accompany the same folks, right? So that so that people who are um, there to enact violence or corruption, that they don't know when an accompanier is going to be there. So it offers an extra level of protection because unfortunately we can't offer 24-7 protection right now. Right. Um, but, but, they, but they don't know when you're going to be there. They don't know when we're going to be there. So they know and they know that that because he has these connections, right, to this coalition. That he's not alone. That he's not alone. And that his that if something happens to him, that his story will not go unreported or that... Because you document be, everything. That we, because we document things. And be, 
there won't be there will be some level of justice because we're going to seek that for anyone who we um, choose to accompany. There, another another story I really wanted to share very briefly is I've accompanied women in the federal prison in El Salvador. There are more than 150 women who have been charged with um, abortion or homicide for having pregnancy complications, the majority of which only had complications and never attempted an abortion. You mean the, the pregnant woman is accused of homicide because the of baby her, doesn't go to term? Yes, absolutely. And there are women who've been charged 10 to 50 years in prison. There are women, mostly indigenous and rural women, right, because they're because of their poverty, because they're in r- more remote places if they call an ambulance or, or um, someone to come and help them and they don't get there in time or they um, ignore their call or whatever because of their remote location, then the law enforcement officer wants to make sure that they're not in trouble for um, mishandling this situation, right? That that they're not going to be the one that is charged uh, with endangerment. So these women will wake up from miscarriages with shackles. They will wake up in prison. They will wake up in the hospital. They'll wake up and um, some of these women, their babies survived these pregnancy complications and they and they're still in prison with attempted abortion, which is disgusting because now their children are being left to be raised without them. Um, it's just, it's a horrible situation and as um, as uh, reproductive rights become more criminalized in the United States, we know that this is an important form of cross-solidarity that in, in my own state in Ohio, we are, uh, we've attempted a six-week abortion ban, and that is trying to make it to the Supreme Court right now. But in Alabama, in uh, uh, several other states, this is happening as well, where more and more people are being criminalized. People with uteruses are being criminalized for, um, for simply, you know, choosing bodily autonomy. So we've accompanied these women in prison, yeah. and to hear their stories, to um, walk with them as they get college degrees, as they are released in prison. from as in prison sometimes, as they're released from prison and they go on to do work to support their um, to support their the other people that they were imprisoned with. Uh, it's just amazing, and we work with the Centro de Intercambio y Solidaridad in El Salvador, and they're, um, they have worked with the women in prison for these, uh, for these cases for many years, and we're just really grateful to be in relationship with them to support their work and to share the similarities between the two places so that we can understand better how to dismantle this oppression that's um, coming at all of us all over the world from all different sides because it's similar, because the root causes are the same causes. And it's the root, and, and I think that's how we began this conversation mm-hmm. of this, this disconnect. It must be exhausting spiritually, <laughs> physically, I re- laugh so I don't relationship cry. wise <laughs> to do this kind of work and to face these kinds of problems day and that is your work yes and now you're here with witness against torture <laughs> talking about which more is another suffering. exhausting <laughs> important yes 
heavy load that's being carried by very few people. It is. It's true. You know. Strong, small, so how but mighty. How do you do that? Uh, that's a great question. I wasn't totally prepared. You know, unfortunately, we all, <laughs> someone said today, you're not born into the movement. You join the movement. Um, but I often say I was born into the movement because of my identity. I was um, automatically set up for a certain type of uh, persecution, right? Because I have a uterus, because I'm, you know, first generation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You're from a mixed family. Because I have a mixed status family, yeah. for instance. Uh -huh. um, because, yeah, my because my family is multi, whatever. Um, <laughs> I always said that I was born into this, that I had no choice, that I, that, that I am part of the movement because... Um, my life depends on it. My liberation, my freedom depends on it. But that does not prepare you for the amount of suffering, really, that you start to see when you do this work. Um, and you really, really, really need to have great people um, checking in with you, supporting you. You can't do it alone. You can never be egotistical enough to think that you can survive this work by yourself because you won't. Um, and thus the community... Of, of activists. Thus that community. I mean, we, I need tools of healing, right? I need pa a path toward liberation. And so I need to create space and time for joy. I need to um, uh, share joy. Um, as Adrienne Marie Brown says, you know, creating joy is, is um, uh, following what emerges that is life-giving. And, um, and, if you think about Gandhi, and although imperfect, um, you know, many, and as many other people are, we're all flawed humans, um, he taught us so much about what it means to create constructive program or to nourish um, life-giving things, right? So I need to um, create joy. That's why we, that's why there's so much art and song in our movements, right? In Witness Against Torture. In Witness Against yeah. Torture with the peace poets, in, um, in the uh, migrant rights uh, movement, in the indigenous rights movement. We are rooted in, um, in song. And we have to we have to create this joy, but we also have to check in with each other. We need to make sure that we are um, getting appropriate mental health care and physical health care. And that's really unfortunate. One thing that's really unfortunate is that a lot of activists don't have health care because and therefore don't have therapy and therefore don't have therapy because they are piecing together. And lots of gig people do this too: journalists, artists, etc. They might not call themselves activists, but they're piecing together, um, you know, their, their bread and butter, but they're not then uh, supported with um, health care. That's why mm -hmm. I believe in health care for all, and that's why I'm going to be supporting Bernie. I know that no politician will save me, but um, I appreciate that uh, his campaign is about the movement and not about himself. Checking in about your, your well-being is really important and not letting things go. We can't normalize things, right? So uh, I've been very fortunate uh, in my work to have the support of my board to look for the similarities between conflict in the Middle East and conflict in Central and South America. Um, and my partner does similar work making the comparisons between Southeast Asia and Central America. And in going to um, Palestine to, to accompany people with Eyewitness Palestine or with Tree of Life or with 
Fellowship of Reconciliation or Christian Peacemaker teams or whoever um, experiencing being strip searched in that um, in that environment um, cannot be normalized. No matter how many of my friends experience that on a daily basis because they are um, living through occupation, uh, so. When someone dies, who we accompany. When someone is assassinated, who we accompany. Ooh. We have to, we really have this to honor. This has happened to you? Someone that you've been accompanying has been assassinated? Um, not while we are accompanying them. I know, but who you but, have been. But who we are accompanying, um, not like literally at that same moment, right? I, have, I get it. But um, who, yeah, we are in partnership with, who are accompanying, and then they are assassinated. We have to recognize every single life as valuable in that way. We have to um, honor it and greet, take time to mourn and grieve. We can't just keep going business as usual. We really need to pace ourselves because this is a marathon and not a sprint, right? We need to make sure that we don't normalize violence. And that is one way that I think that you survive by doing this work. Yeah. A marathon, though, is won by some one person. <laughs> this is a marathon that needs to be run uh, by everybody. It's by everybody, and though. And you need to continue to run throughout your whole life. Yeah, that's true. So it's not quite that race, right? Yeah. Are you going to be doing this for a while? I'm sure. That's my last question. <laughs> yeah. You're, 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 you're in this for the long haul. I um, started this work in many ways because of Columbia. Columbia has been in civil war since 1964. Um, but violence there started with the assassination of a left-wing presidential candidate in 1948. And for those of us who are um, indigenous or come from the indigenous, indigenous communities, um, violence started for us with colonialism. Um, but Columbia is in the longest civil war in, in the hemisphere. But I didn't really become active or vocal about my own struggle first. The first thing that I really became active about was the um, U.S.'s second invasion of Iraq in 2003. I was in high school. That's what activated you. And I, um, ha I had a, a friend and, um, and a partner who um, brought me to a protest downtown Youngstown. I got a couple of buttons that said, Democratic women are the life of the party. And I don't know that I would call myself that now, but I know that I'm the life of the party. And um, this resistance is patriotism. And I was worried because I didn't tell my parents I was going to the protest that they would see me on TV and then I would get in trouble. And of course, my parents have supported my activism very well and deeply. So that actually was a silly worry of mine. But um, I was so moved by um, the... Um, commitment to nonviolence um, that I had seen around me and I knew just in my gut that that invasion was wrong and that it was for um, resources and not people um, to protect resources and not people and so I got involved there and now here we are um, starting a war with Iran this week potentially yep. um, and so Hopefully not, uh, and so unfortunately, I think I'm gonna have to be have to be here for a really long time until all wars are over and until um, until uh, we have and we see collective liberation. There's a live show tonight and in, uh, in the sanctuary upstairs uh, where we're staying, and I'm I'm supposed to be helping with the uh, with the sound equipment. I don't know how much I'm going to be helping, so we have to end it here. 
Uh, and I'll great say again, talking with you, Alan. Great Thank talking you with so you, much. Chrissy Stonebreaker Martinez of the Interreligious Task Force on Central America and Colombia. She's the co-director there. It's been and, a lot um, of fun. I'm glad we got the time to sit down. I've been wanting to talk Me to too. you since last year. I hope that it was beneficial. And I got to talk to you and Mark. Meaningful, yeah. Meaningful, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. No doubt about it. Thank you again. <laughs> This has been a Bar Crawl Radio Extra, conversations with five Witness Against Torture activists at the First Trinity Lutheran Church in Washington, D.C., on the 18th anniversary of the creation of Guantanamo Prison in Cuba. And make sure to check out our conversation with Chrissy and three other activists for peace and common sense, recorded at the Dubliner Bar in D.C. on Bar Crawl Radio number 77.